All right, well, I hope you are already in the book of Joshua. If you're here uh, with us for the first time as we're traveling through this particular book, uh, I am excited to be able to uh, walk through a text like this this morning. And I think I keep thinking to myself, well, man, when are we going to get to these battles? It's coming. Uh, and, you know, you think about it, the whole story of, of the book of Joshua is all about the conquest. It's all about the way in which God does what he does in a miraculous way. And Joshua, uh, as we had mentioned last week, he's, he's walking through. They're, they're, they're now crossed over the Jordan, and, and Joshua is now taking the place of Moses as the main leader of the people of Israel. And now, last week we walked through this ceremonial efforts that the people would remember the gravity of which uh, the moment that they were on the cusp of, of, of experiencing in their life. What a, what a tremendous thing for an individual in Israel to be able to walk through. And then, now this morning, we are in a text of scripture where Joshua is visited by an unexpected visitor. It's very interesting when we think about God coming to different people at different times, and now in the text before us, we see God working in very specific ways. And this morning, as we walk through this particular text, I want to remind us of this as we, as we look at it to think about this particular thought, that a believer's pursuit of worship must include a recognition and pursuit of God's holiness, Okay? A believer's pursuit of, the wor- of worship must include a recognition and pursuit of God's holiness. Now, I understand as Christian people, as we have walked through various texts and we look in the Bible and we see that God is holy and we are called to a level of holiness, we have often, we go to a text of scripture like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, and I want to remind us of it, where it says, uh, the, the apostle Peter says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I think for many occasions of our lives, we drift in and out to some degree uh, of a real gravity and a real uh, a reality of what holiness really means. You know, we live in a culture, even amongst Christian evangelical individuals at large, and to one degree or another, there's a level of which you will hear various things of people say like, but do we really have to be that holy? Or you'll hear somebody say something, if you haven't, you might, you have, you've lived out your Christian principles in front of people, and they would say, oh, you're such a holy Joe. I don't know where Joe came from, but the holy part is what they were after. And what, what they're really uncomfortable with is you're living in such a way that you're making me feel uncomfortable because your desire and pursuit of holy living And in one way, shape, or form, even within Christian communities, at times it could be very easy for us to embrace a response that appears to be more tolerant. Tolerant of sin, tolerant of various components of going back to former passions uh, of our lives and having nobody say anything. Now do you realize how intolerant in some sense holiness is from God's vantage point? God says sin is sin, 
God says my principles are my principles, and therefore we don't have a choice other than to pursue him based upon his own holy standard. Therefore, if I go before the Lord and want to lessen that holy standard, then he has to realign me to the standard of which he himself is created in order that I might be pleasing in my worship. And that's what we're doing, right? That's what we're called here to do on week after week. We come and we're worshiping, and this is what we're after. We are pursuing the holiness of God. We sing about it, we talk about it, we teach about it, we memorize scripture, we have our children think about it. Holiness is a big deal. But if you haven't realized it, our culture doesn't seem as if holiness is that big of a deal. Have you noticed recently? The reality is is that God comes to a culture of every time and expresses his holy standards, and he chooses for himself to magnify his name people who will realign themselves to live holy as he is holy. That is your call and my call this morning together. And as Joshua was leading the people on the cusp of of the conquest and the invasion of the first city, there was a, a constant reminder that you better be holy Because God is holy, and that's what we have with this unexpected visitor. See, Christian people, I want to remind you, if you're a believer and have repented of your sins, you have been set apart. The idea of sanctification is this concept, set apart for what? It is for the holy purposes of God. You don't, and I don't, have the luxury of saying, I'll let you know which holy purposes I'd like to pursue and which holy purposes I would not like to pursue. He will hold us accountable for the very holy pursuits and the way that you and I choose to set our lives apart. Now, isn't this a glorious thing as you think about being set apart for the sake of the glory of God, that if you're here and, and if you're a, a believer for any fraction of a period of time, you have, and you're genuine and you've repented and trusted in him, what do you start to notice about yourself? There's something different about your passions and desires that you used to have. You used to be able to go out and do this and party and and have all these things and, and it never even crossed your mind that you were crossing the line of a holy, divine creator. But all of a sudden now, because God in his own efforts has set you apart, you go to the same place at the same time, you do what you've always done and then there's something in your heart that goes, this isn't right. There's something wrong. I'm uncomfortable. You know who that is? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God that resides within your soul, that guides you into the holy pursuit and recognition of God's holiness. And when you and I recognize that and realign our hearts and our lives and our minds and our practices towards his holy pursuits, you know what he calls it? Worship. 
And there is nothing like coming before God with a heart and a conscience that is clean because you pursued his holy purposes. There is no way you can come on a Sunday and at least and feel okay with yourself when you're if you sit there and you've pursued pursued the world and unholy purposes, and then you think you're gonna just raise your hands and say, Yes, praise be to God. It doesn't work, does it? You can't live for yourself. And then choose one day where you're going to be about God's holy purposes. It doesn't work that way. And I think what Joshua was, what God was trying to do to reinforce uh, to the people was, you have for long periods of time wandered in the wilderness because of your lack of, of perspective of the holy pursuit of God. And now we are here And he desires this level of holiness. It's remarkable when we think about, for example, texts of scripture like Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verse verse 2. Notice what he says. This is interesting about the wilderness wandering. He says, "And, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you. Uh, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Okay, isn't this remarkable that God's holy purposes and holy pursuit of his nation, that part of the conquest was the 40 years wandering in the wilderness to get their hearts prepared to follow the living God and be serious about it. In fact, he even allowed, according to this verse, by the way, if you caught it, I allowed you to go hungry. What? How is that nice? I'll tell you what God is doing. He's bringing them to the end of themselves so that they had no other place to look except for him. Where are we going to eat? What are we going to do? God. And now what they did is often what we would do, right? We complain. All of a sudden, God's like, oh, you're, you're hungry. I want to teach you this. So it's like, I'll give you manna. People are like, yes, manna. Like two years later, they're like, no, manna. All of a sudden, the very divine sovereignty of God, which provides provision, all of a sudden becomes the thing that they detest. And all of a sudden, their view has changed of God. Couldn't you give us something else? And so they're like, well, we want meat. All right, you meat people, I'll give you quail. How about that? Well, we're sick of that. Do you notice this about yourself? That every time you think that you have the right to say, I think I'll be satisfied when it always ends in a train wreck. See, what God knows about us is that we are a people that are fleshly who couldn't be redeemed without the sovereign and holy work of his son, Jesus Christ, who would transform our hearts so that we would no longer complain, but we would worship the provision of our God. 
See, what this tells us, even in Deuteronomy 8 and in the present passage before us, is I don't know what you're experiencing, but I can tell you this. If God let people hunger to teach them what was going on in their heart, he's letting whatever going on in your life go on there so that you could see something that you can't see. And he might just be trying to bring you to the end of your own self-sufficiency so that you would look up and say, God, I've been pursuing you, but for my own agenda. So that you will then come to the end of yourself and say, God, there is no good thing in me. And then you turn and you, you repent and you trust in the living God. See, God has a timing and a timetable for everything. And we'll come back to this text, but I want you to, to, to pen it down in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16 because I want to read it to you because God, in his sovereignty and his holy purposes, even describes a timetable when they would go in and when they would come back. And Genesis 15, 16 says this, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You wonder why the conquest is happening? is because God was gracious and kind to, to, to pull back from dealing with the unholiness in the Canaanites and the Amorite kingdoms because the time had not yet been fulfilled. And you know what that tells you about your God? Oh, he is perfect in patience. He is, people come to the Old Testament conquest and all they can think to themselves is, how can a holy God who loves people allow destruction to happen? Do you realize how patient he had been? He set out from the very beginning, and we'll come back and we realize that this was connected with the very curse of Cain from way back after the flood. God is kind in his purposes. Now notice as we walk together and we think about the visitor that comes to Joshua. What an intriguing component because in the Hebrew text, it just, it, it really has this uh, sequential order. So you, you, you get done with what's going on in the sign of the covenant and the circumcision and they, and they had Passover on the 14th day of Nisan. They were recovering and they were healing. And then the text just simply states, while the people were, were there, uh, and it says, when Joshua was by Jericho, of course, I, I'm likely thinking he's at Gilgal, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him and with, his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him, and he, and he said to him, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? Now, I don't know about you, but it's kind of interesting when Joshua goes, it's like, how would you like this? You know, you don't know where you're going, and you're kind of there, so you stop for directions, and you say, do I go this way or do I go that way? And they say, no wait a minute, like, I'm looking for a yes or no, not neither. Joshua gets this unexpected visit, but it draws his attention of all of a sudden, there was something different that appears to be about this individual. He's standing there, and the text says that he is standing there uh, with his sword, his sword drawn. Now, if you're wondering if that's a guy from Jericho, and Joshua didn't know exactly who this person was, which was Interesting, because Joshua, being the brave leader that he was, uh, you know, he sees a guy with his sword drawn, and he wouldn't say, like, uh, like, Case, who, who's under me? Like, why don't you go check it out? He doesn't do that. Joshua actually goes out and approaches this because I think he sees that there, there, there perhaps is something different about this individual. 
He comes, asks him a basic question. Are you for us or, or are you for our adversaries? Now, it seems to be a, a very basic question, one in which I think if I was Joshua, I would really want the answer to. Uh, if this was a being that could clearly be seen that was different than anything he had seen before, now, just tuck this away in your mind. Joshua understood the holiness of God meeting with Moses in the tabernacle as he stood outside the tent of meeting. Joshua understood when there were holy purposes afoot. And he saw this individual, and Joshua goes to him and says, are you for us or are you for our, are you for our adversaries? And he just responds to him. And this is so remarkable. Neither. What does that tell you about God? Because what Joshua was most concerned about is, guess what? God can use whatever he wants, whoever he wants, to accomplish his purposes, and it's not against God from allowing other people and being against his own people when they don't live up to his holy standards. So Joshua, I think, is really interested to say, like, are you for us or are you for them? <laughs> because he wants to know because God, when God is at work, if the people aren't doing what God knows that they should be doing, Joshua knows that God has a way of taking care of business. He had lived that life. He had been down this road. He had visited the land. Now to come back a second time. He says, no, but here's who I am. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, this is just an interesting statement in, in so many different ways. Uh, what you see is this phrase in the Old Testament where he is the God of the armies of the hosts of heaven. There's different ways to interpret this. You could think to yourself, well, I am the commander of the army of Israel. Is that what he's getting at? Joshua, I know you're the leader, but I'm really the commander of the armies of Israel. Or is he saying, which I think is what's going on here, is he saying, I am, I am commander of the armies of the hosts of heaven of which you, your eyes cannot see, legions upon legions of angelic hosts who are at my disposal to do what I say, to bring judgment where it's needed, to drive people to a holy living. I am the, the commander of the army of the Lord. He underscores this reality. Well, what is this? Well, oftentimes in, in Old Testament pictures and in theological books, you'll understand this is what most theologians call a theophany. And a theophany is just an Old Testament div, uh, uh, circumstance where God has saw fit to come down and meet with his people in different ways. And for example, here's another theophany. Moses in the burning bush. God speaks to him out of the burning bush, and it is God himself. And when Moses says, what am I supposed to say? Who sent me? And he says, tell them, the great I am has sent you. It wasn't the bush. It wasn't the fire. It was the God of, it was the God of heaven coming in the midst of the fire. I love what one particular commentator said about this is that this moment in time before the conquest began, God in his kindness and grace gives Joshua a burning bush experience by interacting with the army, the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, so that Joshua would be confident that he was doing all that God would tell him to do. Now, how nice of God, by the way. I mean, think about this moment in time. You're on the brink of war 
with the entire Canaanite and Amorite people. You've done all that God has required and God has promised you, be strong and courageous and I will give you rest. And all of a sudden, right before the first battle's about to ensue, uh, God shows up. In a theophany in the, is the commander of the armies of the hosts of heaven and he says to Joshua, do what I say and things are going to go good. In fact, Joshua no doubt would know when he said in Joshua 1, don't turn from the right or to the left. These theophanies would happen all throughout the Old Testament. They would happen at Mount Sinai when God came down in an earthquake and a fire at the, at the top of the mountain. Oftentimes theologians will express the reality that when the person of God comes down in, a, in, a human, in the form of a human person, they're trying to distinguish, is this a theophany or is this a Christophany? is what they will call it. Is this a Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, part of the Godhead, as the army of the, of the commander of the armies of the host of heaven, and they will be split on either side? Here's what I can know. It is God come in the form of uh, to speak to Joshua. We know that whether it's Christ himself or it's God in the form of the way he had done things in the Old Testament, I can tell you this. Joshua was at no doubt, he was not mistaken that this is God who is speaking to him. So in either way, if you land as a theophany or a Christophany, I'll let you decide for yourself which one you want to land on. But the reality is, is that the gravity of this situation is that Joshua meets God himself. And the visitor expresses this. And I think what was going on, no doubt, in Joshua's mind is, if, if, is he's asking the question to the, to the commander of the army of the Lord, where is your loyalties lie? Are they with your people who you brought here, or is it with your adversaries who you've called us to destroy? Because is there things that we, we need to do? And, and what you find out is that this commander of the army of the Lord was coming at such a perfect time to, to help them realize, I am with you. You can go into the conquest and go into the battle of Jericho realizing that I commanded this of you. Take this into battle with you. What we can remind ourselves, even in applications, is that God's judgment of any particular nation only it comes at a timing that he alone determines. See, you realize if you were to go back, and I, and I can't read through these two texts of Scripture, but I would, I, would, I would encourage you to think about reading them later. Some of the reason is because of the horrific nature in which, of which it describes the practices of the people of the Canaanite cities. In Leviticus chapter 18, Moses was writing down a picture for the people who had now started to serve other gods, do despicable practices in Leviticus chapter 18. And all throughout uh, the, the, the Leviticus and the Holy Code, he's challenging them. Because they were all of a sudden, he says this kind of thing to them. Don't do the things that the people of the Canaanite villages did. Don't succumb to their passions. Don't succumb to their practices. You have men being with men and women being with women. This is ought not to be done, God says. And it's because of what they were doing that God says the judgment time was right. And guess what? 
God alone makes the holy decision of when he has to deal with judgment. And I would, I would say that we understand living in a culture that is much like what is described in Leviticus 18. And you come to Leviticus 19 and he says the same exact phrase, be holy for I am holy. Do not do what the people of the land do. I would call to you as your pastor and say to you as a Christian, as a member of the chapel or a tender here, do not do the things that the culture is begging you to do. To be tolerant in ways that God is not tolerant of. To be okay with things that God is not okay with. To not turn a blind eye and simply say, well, what are we to do? We must turn and serve the holy and living God in all of his ways that end up with a holy pursuit of him that will be viewed as worship. And I recognize in so many ways growing up in a culture and having cared for people as a shepherd and as a counselor for so many years that it is not beyond people to struggle in a variety of different ways. To struggle with even things like same-sex attraction. And to think to yourself, well, why would, I, why would somebody do that? See, our flesh can lead us to any despicable place. So you don't, don't sit there and say to yourself, well, at least I don't go that far. I'm not one of those. God is in the business of redeeming people. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says that all the people who had practiced and did such despicable things, and I love this phrase, and he says, and such were some of you. That means there is hope no matter where you struggle and how you struggle and where you've come from and what, you've, what you're battling with right now, you can choose to turn from sin and follow the holy pursuits of God. And if you need help, you have a whole body of people who won't look at you and say to them, oh, you struggle like that, gross. Christians, all of our sin is grotesque in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter from complaining all the way to things that we would say are, are the despicable things in the culture that no man wants to talk about. God in his holiness views all of them the same. And they render us incapable of a relationship with a holy God. And here's what he did for you and I. Because he knows that in our unholiness, we could never be, be, be un, uh, wanted in the presence of a living God. He says, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to send my son Jesus. And he's going to take the penalty for you. And so that you can be giving a righteousness that is not of your own. And then you can be holy, not on your own efforts. Oh, Christian, the only reason you and I can even go and pray before the, before the throne room of a, of a holy God is because Jesus Christ stands as our mediator and has gifted us with his righteousness of which we did not earn. It doesn't matter what you've practiced. If you're thinking to yourself here this morning, there's no way God wants me, I've been too unholy. Guess what? We're all there if it wasn't except for the grace of God and the mercy of God and the person of Christ and the loving kindness of his forgiveness. Joshua 
sees this individual. And I love when you, hear, when you see theophanies in the Old Testament, and here's why, because they are so closely associated with divine revelation. Christian, never forget how important divine revelation is. I mean, I would love to have an encounter where God would just say, do this. It's super clear. God has chosen to work that way in different times in the past, and he worked that way with Joshua and told him exactly what to do in Jericho that was coming up so that Joshua would have divine revelation to know and have guidance so he could see where he was supposed to go and do what he was supposed to do and was nothing that he had have to question. See, divine revelation gives us a source of of, of God speaking to us through the pages of the scripture. Christian, you have this. Do you read it? Do you trust it? In the moments when all of a sudden you think, well, I don't know if it's sufficient, it is sufficient for you. He has given you guidance in all ways that pertain to life and godliness so that you and I would never stand before God one day and go, why didn't you tell me? If I would have known. No, that's what a theophany is. It's divine revelation, and you and I have pages of it. And I so often think as a pastor how infrequent or or how frequently I, 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 I hear from Christian people that they don't take time to be in it. This is your life. This is your source of where you will find what holiness actually looks like. It is only there that you will find an encounter with the living and holy God who will never guide you astray, who can always be trusted, who is sovereign in his purposes, who will help guide you with mercy. He will come to you as you weep He will forgive you when you've sinned. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I've just been sinning all of last week and I didn't even seem to care. In the quietness of your own soul as you sit here, you have a God of heaven who desires relationship with you. But you, you will not be able to experience it if you just sin and then think he doesn't want you there. He wants you to humble yourself. Christian, don't ever think that somehow there's no place for you. He wants you there. Even when you have struggled, he wants you to see how badly you need him. It is like your breath that you breathe. Joshua knew this was going to be the case in entering the conquest in the promised land, but these people would not go without a fight. Joshua experiences this unexpected visitor, but very quickly, Joshua responds and understands. After he answered, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and he says, now I have come. Now, it's just interesting, that phrase. I I came to that, and I think to myself, this is what it shouts out to us. My time is now. You and I do not get the right to tell God when his timing, what his timing should be. You and I have the right to humble ourselves and say, God, if the time is now, let's go. And if what you're demanding from us is holiness, then let us pursue you. 
and the holiness is of all that you've said. And if the time is now, then let me wait on you. And you know what? Some, uh, we have to remind ourselves on our Christian journey that for certain things that God is going to fix and redeem and mend and heal and bro- that, are, that are broken, that his, he has a timing for all that. He has a timing for people that you've been praying for, people that you've been asking him to save, circumstance that you've asked him to mend. He has a timing for all things. And when he comes to Joshua and says, now I have come, what that signifies for the people and for Joshua as the leader is that I can't turn back and say, I'm not sure I'm ready to fight because God is ready to fight for his own people. Believers, God is fighting on our behalf the wiles of the devil by giving us the armor of God so that you and I would hold up our shield of faith and our sword of the spirit so that we would know what it looks like to lean so strongly on the living God because we believe that he is holy and he demands holiness. He comes to Joshua and says, now I have come and look at Joshua's response. And he fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped and he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Do you get the pronouns? What does my Lord say to his servant? Tell me whatever you want me to do and that is what I will do. Joshua's posture when he met God was so like all the other moments where a theophany would happen and all of a sudden they find themselves falling down on the face of the ground and they prostrated themselves and what that is is they humbled themselves. Joshua said, I will do whatever you tell me to do, my Lord. He uses the phrase, my Adonai, my master. I'll do whatever you want me to do, even if it seems hard for me. Here's one of the reasons why I don't think this is an angelic being, by the way. You can, you can see this in other occasions. At different points in the New Testament, when all of a sudden a human person tried to bow down to an angelic being, the angelic being would say to, to, to the individual, get up, what are you doing? I'm not to be worshipped. But in this occasion, The commander of the armies of the Lord received the worship and he told him, take off your sandals because the ground that you stand on is holy ground. How did it become holy? It's because God's presence was there. Here you have the, this is why I don't think this is just an angelic being who was gonna fight and was the commander of the armies of the Lord. This was God come to Joshua to reassure him that these purposes that he had set in motion would take place, and he was ready to fight for them. See, I I love Joshua's response because worship is all about making yourself low. See, a pursuit of holiness is about making yourself insignificant and making him significant. See, it's only until all of a sudden we say, I am insignificant and he is significant that we actually get it. It, it doesn't matter what, what my comfort, my feelings, my, God loves you, but guess what? He's not out just to get, get your happiness. He's not just, his agenda for his sovereign rule isn't just to say, oh, I just want everybody smiling. That's not his goal. His goal is that everyone in the world would see him as God and would see his son as the sacrifice of sin on their behalf. See, worship is all about making yourself 
low. That's why John the Baptist in the New Testament said those very words that you're so uh, accustomed to. He must increase and I must decrease. It's only until we recognize the, that we must humble ourselves that we recognize what worship is all about and holiness is all about. God's call for us is to recognize that when we meet him in the pages of scripture, when we come and we read the Bible and we sing about praises to his name, that these are holy efforts. This is why so much painstaking effort is gone into to think, what are, what are the lyrics? What are we thinking about? How are we interpreting the Bible? Is, what, what's going on in small group? Why do we do that? Because the holy purposes of God are at stake. That's why. And all of these efforts that continue to, to come at the forefront of our mind so that we would, we would honestly say that we are pursuing after holiness the way God desires for us to pursue holiness. I would just challenge you as we close this morning with some questions. What does your pursuit of holiness look like before God this last week? this last month, this last year? Can you honestly say before God that you're pursuing after his holiness? Or is it kind of one of those things where it's kind of like, hey, sometimes I choose to think about it and sometimes I don't choose to think about it? I have those moments too, by the way. Where all of a sudden, something seems really important, so you run after it and say, God, what do you want me to do? And then other times you're thinking like, God, I got this. I'll let you know when I need you. See, the reality is, is we need to pursue God and his holiness all year long. He's gracious with us as he walks us through so that he would help us remember that we, don't have, we can be strong and courageous and that we don't have to be frightened or dismayed as he says to Joshua in, in Joshua 1.9. He says, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That means, young person, as you're sharing Christ and college students as you're sharing Christ on the college campus and, and, and individuals sharing Christ at work, he is with you as you're sharing the very holy purposes of God. And there will be people who laugh at you There will be people who will say to you, this is ridiculous. And you will have to say, God, please help their eyes to be opened. Please, I beg you, help them see the holiness of God so they can see their need to, to follow your son, Jesus Christ. This pursuit of a holy God is so important to us. Does your pursuit of holiness change how you talk? And often, reality is, is that we talk about holiness, but we wonder, well, where is it supposed to intersect with my life? I'll tell you where is one of the areas. It should be, you should talk different. There should be something different about the way that you look at your life. If people heard your pre-saved you, and then the then now the saved you, if they were the exact same person and they communicated in the exact same way, they would say, what? See, your holy efforts have to all the way make it down to what you do. And you know what? It has to make it to your heart first because it's only what's in your heart then becomes out of your life. If you see unholy speech, unholy language, and unholy things coming out, guess what you can likely pursue and understand? There's unholiness going on in the heart. 
I am not so far removed from, from what goes on to understand that even in a culture, in a Christian community, that so many times I will hear of people who just go off on somebody. And yes, I've heard plenty of people who profess Jesus Christ go and use all kinds of expletives on me. Don't think that that doesn't happen. See, holiness realizes in our own pursuit to say how I say and what's coming out really does matter. Remind yourself of Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, so often people, even in Christian communities, unleash the sinful power of the tongue. Complain and gossip and slander and and all kinds of things in ways that does not reflect a holy pursuit of the living God. It has to, Christians, it has to make us speak different. People have to see God's grace through how we love people and how they see that is through how we talk and behave with others. Does your pursuit of holiness change what you set before your eyes? Does it change what you tend to look at, what you tend to watch on TV or Netflix or whatever station or Hulu or you name it and YouTube and every other station or, or internet site that you could go to? Do you even come to grips with what is God's holiness about right now? When I'm on my phone or on my computer or I'm searching for a movie, you know, I, I've, I've often, you know, it's, it's challenging for us like, oh, how much unholiness is enough for us to say that's enough like we have to really begin to contemplate taking seriously what we set before our eyes i mean think of what's what what the psalmist says in psalm 101 verse 3 i will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless i hate the work of those who fall away it shall not cling to me that's the pursuit of holiness I can't look at it. I don't want to see it. I don't even want to go there. If somebody's going there, I'm not going with them there. Oh, Christian, guard what's before your eyes. Once you see something, you can't unsee it. And it can haunt your mind for years. But if you take your holy pursuit of God seriously, you'll guard your eyes even more. And even Job said, the righteous man that he was, he said, I will not look upon a maiden and have his gaze be drawn away from the worship of the God of heaven. Watch yourself and watch what you're setting before your eyes. Does your pursuit of holiness change your friend selection? Many of people who have been drawn away by the choice of friendships that they have. 1 Corinthians 15 says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Oh, so often as I've seen and, and, and was challenged in many different ways as I've cared for people over the years, how many young people will say, well, I think I'm being a better uh, example on them, than the influence on them than they are with me. And their moms and dads are going, really? 
I think this is working the other way around. It's, it's because a pursuit of holiness means we have to even change to say, if all of a sudden somebody who even claims to be a Christian says they don't want to pursue the holy efforts of God, you as a Christian actually have to say, I'm not sure how much time I can spend with them. If they're, if they're challenging you to watch things, do things, disobey things that God is telling you not to do or your parents are telling you not to do, that's not good. And for you to turn a blind eye and say, I just don't care about holiness right now, that's not helpful to you. That's why God puts these verses here for us to be alarmed to say, I got to be careful even how my holy pursuit impacts my friend's selection so that I'm built up for the glory of God, and I'm building up other people. And yes, I know it's hard at times, but that means we have, to, we have to talk to one another, and if a Christian is pursuing something that is unholy, the best thing you can do is to love them enough to talk with them. The Proverbs say, blessed, blessed are the wounds of a friend. Wicked are the kisses of an enemy. Oh, you, you and I could do one another a favor by loving each other enough to tell each other things that are hard because we pursue after the holiness of God more than anything else. Does your pursuit of holiness cause you to cling to God's principles when life's difficult? Or do you just complain? Say, God, why are you doing this? I don't like it. Do you try to find something to blame. See, God wants you to go to him. He wants you to remember what Joshua 1.9 continued to say. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As we close up this morning, I just want to challenge you. Holy, a pursuit of holiness matters to God. And we are called Christians to live as a holy people in the midst of an unholy culture, which should cause us to stand out and shine as bright lights in the midst of the darkness. So when people ask you the question, why don't you do this? Why don't you say this? Why don't you go there? That you can say, because that wouldn't be pleasing before the eyes of a holy God, and it wouldn't be helpful to me to disregard the very clear commands because I love him and he loved me and saved me, you will have an opportunity based upon your pursuit of holiness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can't do that effectively if all of a sudden you care very little about holiness because if all of a sudden you look like the world, then your message is hindered. And the holiness of God in the midst of an unholy culture matters because God wants to be known. And we shouldn't be the stumbling blocks to the message that God is desiring to declare before the nations because we don't take holiness seriously. Joshua comes to this unexpected visitor and he was, he was gripped with the reality that God would fight for them. But Joshua had to maintain his own holy pursuits, because the ground he stood on was holy. I love what Abraham Lincoln said. Someone came to him in the midst of the Civil War and said, Abraham, he said, 
he was, he was asked this question. Is God on your side? And this was his response. He says, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. And Christian, that's where we should land. God's side is always right, which means the pursuit of holiness is always good because it will always end up in a life of worship. And what he's calling us to is to live holy as he is holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness that you continue to bestow on our lives. Even as we are challenged to live holy as you are holy, even as we are people in the process of sanctification, that your mercy and love and grace is so forgiving and comforting. Lord, that you restore us each time that we have failed. Lord, but don't let us ever forget your demands of holiness so that we see you the way you desire to be seen and that we would pursue after being holy as you are holy. In your name we pray, amen.